Tonight's going to be a very special Bible study in that I want us to look at the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. Uh, many people have called the book of Romans the greatest book in the entire Bible, and that would be hard to argue against. Um, I would say for most Christians, if you ask them, what's the most important book in the Bible, uh, but that most of them would say the book of Romans. It's been well said, if the Bible is a ring, then the diamond on that ring is the book of Romans. And it's been said even the apex cut on that diamond would be Romans chapter 8. Uh, tonight, we have the privilege of looking at the first eight chapters. Now, I don't normally preach that many verses, and we're not going to be able to look at every verse, but I know that when Chris G. was, was with you, he was able to walk you through the first eight chapters. And so, just to bring us all up to speed before... Uh, next week, when Austin will take you further in the book of Romans, uh, we thought it would be helpful just to do a flyover uh, the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. And I would have to say, this in many ways is the very heart of the entire Bible. And the focus of, of these verses and these chapters, in fact, the entire book of Romans, is the gospel. And so I want to begin just by reading verse 1, and I think you'll immediately see why we would say that the gospel is the big idea, the dominant truth in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, in verse 1, Paul writes, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And on the very front porch of this book, in the very opening verses, Paul draws immediate attention to what is on his mind and what is on his heart. He is writing to us about the gospel of God. Now, it's very important that we know exactly what the gospel is, because you cannot be wrong about the gospel and be right with God. Uh, the gospel is the means, the way by which God has designed for us to come into right relationship with Him. And so the gospel is, is critically important. Uh, a man named R.C. Sproul, I don't know if you recognize that name, is one of the most uh, brilliant theologians of the last hundred years, um, once told me that every semester when he would begin teaching in seminary, in systematic theology, he would always begin by asking this question, what is the gospel? And Dr. Sproul told me that he was amazed that full-time seminary students who have quit their jobs and come to school, so many of them could not even answer that most basic, simple question, what is the gospel? Uh, if I was to ask you tonight, what is the gospel, what would you say? Uh, what would you give as the answer for what is the gospel? Well, tonight I want to help us help you answer that very simple question, what is the gospel? And it's important not only that you know what the gospel is, but that you have received the gospel by faith. So, 
just by way of, of, of introduction, the first 17 verses of chapter 1 is what we call the introduction to the book of Romans or the prologue. And I want to make just a few observations with you about the gospel before we really begin to walk our way through these first eight chapters. Now, the last four words of verse 1, the gospel of God. Let's just focus on those four words just for a few moments. Uh, You'll note first the definite article, the, the gospel of God. The gospel in the Bible is never referred to as a gospel, as if there are many different gospels, and the gospel in the Bible is just one of many gospels. The definite article, the, indicates that there is only one gospel, that there is only one way to come to God, that there is only one saving message, and that every other religion and every other message is a false way to God that does not lead to God. There is only one way and that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, verse 17, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the end of death. We could say there are many roads to hell. There is only one road to heaven, and that is through the gospel. So we're not surprised to see Paul refer to the gospel as the gospel, the one and only gospel. Now, the last two words of God, that indicates that this gospel has come from God, that God is the source of this gospel. He is the author of this gospel. Uh, He is the architect of this gospel. Uh, The gospel has not arisen from any church Uh, The gospel has not come from any denomination or any ministry. Uh, The gospel has not arisen from within any man or the culture or society. No, the gospel has actually come down from above. It it is an out-of-this-world gospel. It, It is only this gospel that provides God's solution to man's dilemma. Now, what does the word gospel mean? You see it right there, four letters, G-O-S-P-E-L. And in the Greek language that Paul wrote this, it's what we call a compound word. A compound word is two words that are joined together to form one word. And in the Greek language, I'm going to pronounce the word, and then I'm going to break out these two words, and it'll help us understand what does the word gospel mean? Uh, There's a prefix, which is U, E-U, those two letters, E-U, and it means good. For example, you go to a funeral and someone will give a eulogy. He will give a good word about the person who has just passed away. And then the main root word is angel, and you can hear angel. You can hear Los Angeles in angel. Angel just means messenger. 
or angel or message. Euangelion means the good message, the good news, the glad tidings. And it is the greatest news that has ever been proclaimed here on this earth. For the rest of your life, you will never, ever hear better news than what is in the gospel. It's not just good news. It is the greatest news to ever be proclaimed and to ever be published here upon the earth. And it is the message of how holy God can receive sinful man. God is a holy God. And God cannot receive sinners into his presence. Every one of us here tonight has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we have no basis of accessing God. We have no approach or entrance to God. The only way that we can come to God is through the truth of the gospel message. Now, in verse 2, he will tell us this is not a new message. It's not a new message that that started in the first century, uh, some years after the death of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 2, which, referring to the gospel, which he, God the Father, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Uh, This gospel was preached in the Old Testament. Uh, This gospel was made known to people who lived before the coming of Christ. And this tells us that there is only one way to God, whether you lived in in the Old Testament or whether you live in the New Testament, there's only one gospel. And this gospel was proclaimed in the Old Testament. In fact, God himself was the first one to preach this gospel, and he preached it to Adam and Eve as soon as they rebelled and disobeyed and fell into sin. This gospel was preached to Abraham. This gospel was preached to Moses, to David, to Solomon, to Isaiah, all the way to to Malachi. And so there's only one way of salvation, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, whether you lived in the Old Testament, whether you live in the New Testament, there is only one saving message, and that is the gospel. And in verse 3 and 4, he tells us that this gospel is found, it is rooted and grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. So in verse 3, he says, concerning his son, the gospel concerns his son, the son of God, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. How amazing. He is the son of God, and he is the son of David. As the son of God, that speaks of his deity, his eternal deity. And as the son of David, this tells us that this son of God who is uncreated, who has existed throughout all eternity past, was born a descendant of David. He was born of a virgin. And he would be the Savior who would come and fulfill the the design of the gospel. In verse 4, he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. There were thousands upon thousands of people who had been crucified on a cross in the Middle East. But there was only one who was raised from the dead. 
and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the resurrection was the ultimate validation that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. And it is through Jesus, verse 5 says, that we have received grace. The free gift of God and the salvation that comes through the gospel, it has all come through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is not one drop of grace outside of Jesus Christ. There is not one drop of grace in any way to be received except you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So Paul, as he begins the book of Romans, just begins by laying out his case for the gospel. We know exactly what this book is about in the very opening verses of this book. I'll come down to verse 16 and 17 as as Paul brings this uh, opening introduction to conclusion. He says in verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And we would say, Paul, why are you not ashamed of the gospel? And he will tell us, for it is the power of God for salvation. It is the most powerful message that has ever been preached in this world It is a message that is so powerful that it alone can bring forgiveness of sin. It alone can give a right standing before God. It alone can transform hell-bound sinners into glory-bound saints. It alone can break the chains of sin in a person's life. It alone can set you free to live as God intends you to live. It is the power of God for salvation. And he says to everyone who believes, and there we see how this gospel is received. It is received not by good works, not by becoming a good person, but by simply believing in Jesus Christ. And you see at the end of verse 16, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the Jew must believe in Jesus Christ. The Greek must believe in Jesus Christ. Anytime, anywhere, anyone on planet earth is ever made right with holy God in heaven, it is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So verse 17 is the most important verse in the entire book of Romans. It's what we call the theme verse. And it says, for in it, the it refers to the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In order for you to go to heaven, in order for you to be accepted by God, in order for you to find acceptance with God, you need more than forgiveness of sin. You need the righteousness of God. Forgiveness of sin removes the negative, but you need the acquisition of the positive. You need a right standing with God. And that is what the righteousness of God provides for us. You need to be made righteous. You need to be declared righteous before Almighty God. And there is only one place to receive this righteousness. And this says it is a righteousness that comes from God. The righteousness that God requires of you, God provides for you in the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. And so he says, from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. There is a summary of the gospel. It is the gospel that is the power of God. It is the, the gospel that gives the righteousness of God. Now, beginning in the next verse, verse 18, the message of the book of Romans now officially begins. And I'm going to make this very simple. I'm going to give you just four words as we will walk through these eight chapters. And we're going to hang all of our thought on just four words. And they will be like the stepping stones as we walk through the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. So there'll be four main sections. The first word is the word condemnation. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 and extending through chapter 3 and verse 20, you can just write the word condemnation over that entire section. And it is the condemnation of the entire human race by holy God in heaven. You might say, why would Paul begin the gospel message here with condemnation? Because that doesn't sound like good news to me. Well, we need to understand that there is no good news until you know what the bad news is. No one will ever be saved until they know they're lost. No one will ever desire to go to heaven until they know they're going to hell. And so Paul begins with the bad news. He begins with the message of condemnation that every person who has ever entered this world, every person who has ever entered the human race, began in a state of condemnation. You might say, well, what would I have to do to be in a state of condemnation? And the answer is, in reality, just be born. Because you enter this world separated from God, you enter this world under the wrath of Almighty God. So look at verse 18. The verse, eight, verse 18 is a very striking verse. Uh, verse 18 is a, is a stunning verse. He says, for the wrath of God. Stop right there. What, what is the wrath of God? It is the holy anger and vengeance and fury of God against the entire human race that is in rebellion against Him. God is so morally perfect, and God is so perfectly holy that just one sin is enough to provoke the wrath of God. The wrath of God in the Greek language, I'm going to pronounce this word because you're going to recognize the English word in it. It is the word orge, orgy. And orgy is 
a wild party and where people have heated passions and they are so worked up that they they are breathing heavy and hard as they are filled with sexual lusts and all kinds of carnal desires and there is uh, heavy breathing as people are drawn and enticed into the lusts of the flesh. This is the very word that is used for God. But it is not a sinful passion. It is a pure and holy passion in which God is exasperated, in which God is so angry that God has heated passion against the sinner man and against the sinner woman because that one has violated his holiness and has broken his law and has chosen to go their own way. And God is not indifferent. And God is not just morally neutral. God is a holy God. God must hate all sin. And God is angry with the wicked every day. So look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. That's a present tense verb. Right now, this very moment. It's not just that one day, on the last day, at the final judgment, that God will be angry. No, right now, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That speaks of the attitude, that speaks of the heart, and unrighteousness, that speaks of the action of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is where Paul begins his argument for the gospel. This is where Paul begins the premier teaching in the entire Bible on what is the gospel. He begins with the message of condemnation. Now let me explain why this is so very important. No one will ever be saved And no one will ever be right with God until they are convicted of their sin and until they know that they have offended holy God in heaven and that the wrath of God is upon them. That's where Paul begins. Now notice, he goes on to say in verse 21, for even though they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. It's God who darkens their heart. And now if you'll note in verse 24, 26, and 28, three times in a row, you'll see God gave them over. In verse 24, Therefore, God gave them over. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over. Verse 28, 
God gave them over. Because they would not receive God, because they chose to refuse and reject God, because they chose to rebel against God and disobey His Word, God gave them a shove in the direction they wanted to go. And God gave them over, verse 24, to sexual impurity, verse 26 and 27, to lesbianism and homosexuality. And in verses 28 and following, it is the longest list of vices in the entire Bible. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. Verse 29, to be filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That's the only explanation for what's going on in the world right now. That's the only explanation for Los Angeles. That's the only explanation for UCLA. That's the only explanation for California. That's the only explanation for New York City and Dallas, Texas, where I live. If people will not have God, then God will abandon them. And God will give them over to all kinds of gross, vile sins. This is where Paul begins his teaching on the gospel. And you are seeing it take place before your very eyes. It's taking place all around. It is taking place around the world. Now, if you would, fast forward to chapter 3. And I'm just going to speed to the end of this opening section on condemnation. Paul will present his case against the Jew, and he will present his case against the Gentile, and he will show that the entire world has been weighed in the balances and is found wanting and has sinned and come short of the glory of God. And beginning at the end of verse 9 and extending through verse 18 is what theologians call total depravity. Total depravity teaches that every part of human nature is poisoned by sin. That the mind, that the heart, the eyes, the ears, the hands, the feet, the desires, the attitude, the loves, the affections, the choices of the will are all contaminated by sin, are all polluted by sin, are all poisoned by sin, from the top of a person's head to the bottom of their feet, every inch and every ounce of them have the, have the fatal cyanide of sin in their system. So notice at the end of verse 9, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under Sin under the condemnation of sin, under the power of sin, 
And he now begins to spell it out, beginning in verse 10. And verses 10 through 18 are all quotations from the Old Testament. If you have a New American Standard translation like I do, it's in all capital letters. And Paul quotes from the Old Testament to make his case here to show this is nothing new. This has been in the Bible for centuries. This is just the old message of the Old Testament brought into the New Testament. So notice beginning in verse 10, he says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. The mind is in darkness. There is none who seeks for God. That means their heart is defiled. All have turned aside. That means have turned away from God. Together they have become useless. Their entire life is absolutely useless. There is none who does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. You always close a grave. Because in the grave is a corpse, a dead corpse. And after about three days, it begins to decay And the stench is so foul that if the grave was not closed, that that odor would be so rank, no one would even come near that grave. But this says their throat is an open grave, that every time they open their mouth, the stench of death and the pollution of sin comes out of their mouth as they run others down, as they slander God. Notice the next line, and their tongues, with their tongues, they keep deceiving. They're just liars. They distort the truth and reality to cover up from themselves. The poison of ass, that's a snake. The poison of ass is under their lips. In other words, there's there's deadly venom that comes out of their mouth. Every time they open their mouth, verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. You say, who is that? Who is that not? This is... God's verdict on the entire human race. It's God's verdict on your life. Let me make this very personal. This is what God thinks of your life. If you're outside of Christ. So this is, this wraps it up. And it says, when these stand before God, at the end of verse nine, at the, in the middle of verse 19, every mouth will be closed. There'll be no self-defense. There'll be no excuses. There will be no appealing to a higher court. Uh, there'll be no wanting to appeal to a different judge. Their mouth will be shut.
Now, I, I didn't write this. This is God's case against every person who has ever lived in the history of the world. It could not be worse. And any other estimation of the human race is simply a vain imagination in your darkened mind. So that's where the gospel begins. And what this does is it underscores the desperate need for salvation. You don't need to be saved because you're lonely. You don't need to be saved because you're unhappy. You don't need to be saved because you're going through a difficult trial. You don't need to be saved because you're feeling kind of insecure about yourself. You need to be saved because God is angry at the sinner. And because the wrath of God abides on all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. This is a long way from smile, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Condemnation. It's an irrefutable case that Paul has presented. Now, this comes to the second word, and it is the word justification. Justification begins in chapter 3 and verse 21, and it will extend through through the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4 and all the way through chapter 5, and it is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And this is the very the very cornerstone of the gospel. It's been called the very hinge of the gospel. Uh, this is the most important truth of the gospel, that the righteousness that you and I so desperately need to have to be given to us, it comes to us as a free gift through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So beginning in verse 21, but now apart from the law, and that means apart from keeping the law and the works of the law, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. The the righteousness of God is what you and I so desperately need in order to be made right with God. If we don't have righteousness, we're not right with God. And we cannot work up righteousness on our own. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God, Isaiah says. So if we are to be right with God, we need righteousness. The only way to have this righteousness is for God to give us this righteousness as a free gift that we received with an empty hand by faith. What God requires, God grants in the gospel. And so we read, it's been made manifested, verse 
22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Now, this righteousness that you need, let me explain what this word righteousness means. In the first century, a woman would go into the marketplace to buy some grain. She would go to a merchant. She would ask to buy a certain measure of grain. The merchant would pull out his scales and place them there on a table with two bowls on both sides of the scales, and he would take a a rock or a metal object and put it on one side of the scales, and that side of the scale would go down. And he would take a bag of grain, and he would pour the grain into the other side of the scales until the scales became perfectly even, and when they were perfectly even, they were said to be righteous. So to complete this analogy, God has some scales, and he's going to measure your life. And on one side of the scales, God pours out your life. everything that you've ever done in the history of your life. And on the other side of the scales is placed the perfect holiness of Jesus Christ. And you will be measured against the perfect holiness, really, of God. In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus said, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's no way any one of us can get these scales to be righteous. We don't meet the mark. None of us can meet the mark. The only way for these scales to become righteous is for God to put on this side of the scales the perfect righteousness of someone else. Someone else who lived in your place, someone else who died in your place, someone else who was perfect, who was sent into this world, who lived a perfect life, who went to the cross and died in your place, God takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and when you believe in Christ, His perfect life and his perfect death are put on this side of the scales, and suddenly the scales are absolutely righteous and are absolutely perfectly the same. And there is only one way for you to meet the standard that God has for your life, and that is for Jesus Christ and his righteousness to be put on this side of the scales, and the only way for that to happen is for you to believe in Christ, for you to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, for you to come to the end of yourself, for you to turn away from your own good works and your own self-righteousness, 
and to turn to Christ completely. And there, surrender your life to Christ and entrust your life to Christ. And when you do that, God takes His righteousness and puts it on the scales on your behalf, and now you are perfectly righteous before God. You've never lived a a moment of righteousness in your life. Your entire life has been lived unrighteously. You have sinned. You have gone astray from the Word of God. You don't deserve this. You haven't earned it. It is the gift of God. It is the grace of God that God gives you what you do not deserve. God gives you what you so desperately need. God gives to you the perfect righteousness of His own Son. Let me give you another analogy. You stand before the judgment seat of God. The books are open. Every act, every sin, every word, every deed, every attitude that you have ever committed in your entire life, God has kept impeccable records. And the entire case against you is presented. You are condemned. The wages of sin is death. But standing next to you is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our advocate, who is our Savior. And because of your faith in Jesus Christ, God declares you to be righteous under the law on the basis of the one who stands next to you. That's why 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says he is our advocate. He stands next to us in the judgment. And because God looks upon Christ, God declares you to be his righteousness. Uh, Let me give you one more analogy. You stand before God, who is the one who keeps the books and the records in heaven. He looks into your account. You are spiritually bankrupt. You have no spiritual capital whatsoever. In fact, you're in debt to God, and the wages of your sin is death. It will take you all eternity in hell to even begin to come close to pay off this debt. And the longer you're in hell, the greater is the debt that you owe to God. There is no way for you to come out from underneath this state of bankruptcy. But Jesus Christ comes and stands next to you. He has all the treasures of His grace and of His mercy and of His forgiveness. And because of your faith in Jesus Christ, Christ, God takes your deposit slip. You have nothing in your account. In fact, you just owe an insurmountable debt. And God takes all of the riches of His grace and deposits it into your account. You haven't worked for it. You haven't earned it. 
You don't deserve it. In your hands, no price you bring. Simply to his cross you cling. And God deposits the treasures and the riches of Christ into your account. And in that one moment, you have become an heir of salvation. And the grace of God is now yours. Let me give you one more analogy. And all these are in the Bible. You stand before God, and you are absolutely naked, just like Adam in the garden. You have no fig leaves to hide behind. Your sin is exposed before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. There's no covering for your sin. Jesus stands next to you. And because of your faith in Jesus Christ, God takes the perfect, ra- uh, the perfect robes of His righteousness and He clothes you from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. And you now stand before God clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's really the analogy in Romans 4 that that he will develop, that our sins will be covered by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That in a nutshell, and using those analogies, those are three analogies. And if you're taking notes, this is what these analogies are. One is a legal courtroom. The second is a, a financial banking analogy, and the third is a clothing analogy. All three of those are taught in the Bible to illustrate justification by faith. You put your faith in Christ. He declares you to be righteous. He deposits the righteousness of Christ into your account, and He clothes you with His perfect righteousness. That is the only way you and I will ever find acceptance before a holy God in heaven. And without Christ as your Savior, and without your faith in Christ alone, you have no basis of finding acceptance with God. So that's the second section, justification. Let me rather quickly do the last two. The third section is sanctification. That starts in Romans 6, verse 1, and it goes through Romans 8 and verse 17. Romans 6, 1 through 8, 17. Sanctification. And sanctification is your personal growth in practical holiness. It is the, 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 the reality of your life, how your life is lived now in a, in a new way, going in a new direction. You have new motives and you have a new path that you're on. You become a new person in Christ. And so beginning in Romans 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? 
when you believe in Jesus Christ, you died. You died to your old way of life. You died to a life of sin. You died to selfishness. You died to lust. You died to greed. That old life is over. It is buried. It is ancient history. It is, it is behind you. If you have truly believed in Jesus Christ, a whole new life now begins. No one can believe in Christ and their life not radically change. And so he says, beginning in verse 2, that we have died to sin. We have died, in verse 3, we have died with Christ. When Jesus died upon the cross, you and I were in Christ, and when He died, we died. And He was buried, verse 4 says, we were buried with Him. And when He was raised from the dead, we were raised from the dead because we have been identified with Christ by faith. So we are dead to our old way of life. It's over. And we are now alive to a a whole new life to live, to pursue purity and holiness and godliness and love and obedience and and selflessness and humility and self-control and all of these things. This whole section on sanctification tells us that everyone who is justified begins the lifelong pursuit of being sanctified. And the word sanctified simply means to become holy, to become like Jesus Christ, to become separated from the world, the world system, to become set apart unto the things of the kingdom of God. A whole, no, a whole new life has begun. And so chapter 6 just walks us through this, this change that has taken place. In fact, verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? This, what this is saying is every person in the world is a slave. There is no one who is not a slave. Everyone here tonight is a slave. And you are a slave to one of two masters. If you're an unbeliever, you are a slave to sin, and sin is your master, and you will obey sin, and you will follow sin because sin cracks the whip, and he is your Lord, and he is your master, and you will live in that direction. Or... Jesus Christ is your master, and you are the slave of Christ, and you now want to obey him from the heart. You love Christ. No slave ever had a a greater, more loving master than than what we have in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we now serve him as his slaves. But it's either war. It's one or the other. Either sin is your master, 
and you obey sin, or Jesus is your master and you obey him? How can you know if you're saved? How can you know if you're justified? Who are you obeying? If you obey sin as the big picture of your life, it is obvious you're an unbeliever. If you obey Jesus Christ as the big picture of the pursuit of your life, you may have the assurance of your salvation that Jesus Christ is your master. This is not without a struggle. We still struggle with sin. And so Romans chapter 7 is all about the internal conflict that still goes on inside of our Christian lives, that those things that we don't want to do, we do, and the things we do, we we don't want to do. And it's an ongoing conflict within us. We don't become perfect. It's just that there's been this dramatic change yet we still struggle with sin. So how will we live a life of victory over sin and live for the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, that takes us to Romans 8. In Romans 8, 1 through 17, verses 1 through 17 is all about the Holy Spirit who has come to live inside of every believer. The Spirit is mentioned in verse 2, in verse 4, twice in verse 5, in verse uh, 6, three times in verse 9, twice in verse 11, once in verse 13, once in verse 14, once in verse 16. This is all about the ministry of the Holy Spirit who has come to live inside of every believer and to empower us to live the Christian life. And he says, if anyone does not have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to God because God has put his Holy Spirit inside of every true believer to help you and to help me live in a way that is pleasing to God. For example, verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And this leading by the Holy Spirit is not so much talking about decision-making in your life. He's talking about the Spirit will lead you into purity. The Spirit will lead you into godliness. The Spirit will lead you into love and to obedience and those things that are pleasing to God. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And so as we live our Christian lives, that too is the result of believing the gospel. Um, It's the inevitable result of committing your life to Christ. In that moment, you are justified and given a right standing before God, but it begins now this new life of sanctification. So are you seeing God at work in your life as the Holy Spirit indwells you? Do you see the Spirit of God 
leading you? And are you following the leadership of the Holy Spirit into the will of God? Now, the final word starts in verse 17 and goes to the end of Romans 8, and it's the word glorification. And glorification is just very simply a believer in heaven made fully in the image of Christ, our sin nature eradicated, and we now are in heaven presented faultless before the throne of God. Uh, You'll notice at the end of verse 30, the word glorified, uh, that's glorification. He talked about glory in verse 18, that that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We do suffer in this world, but there is glory that awaits us in heaven And as he weighs this on the scales, our our present suffering and conflict with sin in this world is not even worthy to be compared with the the greatness of the glory that awaits us one day in the presence of God. And so he tells us in verses 29 and 30, that those whom he foreknew, he predestined, verse 29. And those whom he predestined, verse 30, he called and these whom he called, he justified, and these whom he justified, he glorified. Uh, that stretches from eternity past to eternity future. The first two are in eternity past, those whom he foreknew and predestined. The next two occur within time, those whom he called and those whom he justified. And then the last one, glorified, takes place in eternity future. And so in verse 29 and 30, it's the, the full spectrum from eternity past to eternity future, God's work of grace in the life of the one whom he chose before the foundation of the world. So glorification is absolutely certain for the one who has believed in Jesus Christ. You are as certain for heaven this moment as if you've already been there 10,000 years if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ. And the one who is a true believer in Jesus Christ is the one whom God chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. And it leads inevitably at the end of verse 30 to being glorified in heaven. So that is a brief synopsis of the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, and it ends Verse 38 and verse 39, I'll just end with this. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No believer will ever lose their salvation. No one who has committed their life to Jesus Christ will ever become an unbeliever. And no one who has committed their life to Christ will ever fall from grace. The Lord himself will see to it that you will come all the way to heaven. And that is the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
So tonight, as I bring this to conclusion, I just want to ask you this very personal and important question. Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Have you believed the gospel? And if you have believed the gospel, then God has clothed you with the perfect righteousness of his son. He has begun to change your life dramatically. And one day he will bring you all the way to heaven. If you've never believed in Jesus Christ, I would urge you to do so this second, this very moment as you're seated right there in that seat. The Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. If you've never believed in Christ, I want you to know the wrath of God is abiding on your life and will follow you every step of your life until you come to the place where you repent of your sin and you commit your life to Christ and he will receive you, he will embrace you, and God will declare you to be in right standing before him. But you must commit your life. You must entrust your life to Jesus Christ. May God give you the grace to do that. Let us pray.